Uh, this morning we're in Luke again, Luke chapter 4. Um, and just a reminder, uh, I think it's on the screen, we've called this series To Seek and to Save the Lost. Um, and that's not just uh, by, uh, by coincidence. It, it's one of the verses uh, in, Luke's chap- in Luke chapter 9. Um, but it's really the overriding theme of this whole gospel. As I read it and understood it, this is what keeps coming up uh, over and over and again. And it will probably appear in every passage that we look at um, And one of the reasons that this is so important is because Jesus, through Luke's telling of his story, very often causes us to think about, well, who who are the lost, right? Who who exactly is it that Jesus has come to seek and to save? Um, And this is something that we're going to look at again and see in this passage this morning. most of you will know that back in the end of September, I had a bit of an accident and I ended up in hospital. And I was joking with Liam and Claire this week. I was like, even when I was in hospital, I was like, I wonder how many sermon illustrations I'm going to get with this. Uh, well, here's one for you today. Um, don't know if you've ever been in the fracture ward in the Royal, but it's absolute bedlam. Like, it's, it's not a restful place at all to be. Um, but there was an older gentleman across the, the ward from me. Um, and he was pretty seriously injured. He had a, a fractured hip and um, he had a broken arm. And uh, the sad thing is, even though he was pretty seriously injured, he kept refru- refusing treatment. Um, and he would try to, he would keep trying to get out of bed and, and try to, to get off the ward. And anytime a nurse would, would come and help him back into the bed or explain why he was there, he would just get really frustrated. And, and he would keep saying, I don't need to be here. There's nothing wrong with me. Like, why are you trying to keep me here? Even though he was pretty seriously uh, unwell. Um, and actually, there's nothing funny about that at all when you see that happening multiple times a day. There's something really tragic about somebody who is in desperate need of help but refuses to accept it. There's something tragic about, uh, probably even more tragic about someone who is in desperate need of help, but doesn't even realize they need help. It was a sad sight to see. Um, And what we see in our passage this morning is that we are all in need of help. We're all in need of the gospel. And if we don't recognize that, it can have tragic results. In other words, what we're going to see this morning is that the gospel of Jesus is for all who are in need. And we need to recognize that that includes us. The gospel of Jesus is for all who are in need, and we must recognize that that's us. This passage is about the start of Jesus' kind of public ministry. Last week we heard how he was tempted in the devil, tempted in the devil, tempted by the devil in, in the, the wilderness, um, and now he's going about starting his public in, uh, ministry. And it's interesting because as I was reading this passage, I noticed that Luke only spends two verses summarizing this initial success of Jesus' ministry, verses 14 and 15. And the rest of the time, he tells us about this one incident in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, where he grew up, uh, that doesn't seem very successful at all. In fact, it ends with the people of the town trying to murder him. Jesus, after he's been tempted by the devil, uh, comes back to Galilee, which is a region in the north of of Israel, um, And this is where he grew up. And as he starts going about the synagogues, the people receive him well. Um, Verse 15 tells us that he is glorified by all. That that word literally means they were praising him, the way we praise God. He is essentially being worshipped and given praise. And so it seems like he's off to a pretty good start. This is a pretty good venture so far. But why is it that Luke 
only gives us this brief summary of the successful part of the start to Jesus' ministry, but then focuses more on what looks like a failure. Surely if his teaching in these synagogues was so successful, and we know he's been doing miracles, as we'll see later on, shouldn't we hear the details? Why would we not want to know the details of what's been happening? Why does he focus on this not-so-successful episode in his hometown of Nazareth? Well, the reason Luke does this is that this episode of Jesus' life reveals to us what the gospel is, who the gospel is for, and how we should respond to it. One of me and Haley's uh, Christmas traditions, it's kind of a funny tradition, I don't know how it happened, is that every year in a kind of week or so leading up to Christmas, we always have a wee shopping day in Ballymena. I don't know why we do that. I don't know how it started, but we drop the kids off at my mom's, and then we'll spend the day shopping and having coffee and stuff like that. Um, And I don't know about you, but I love going back to where I'm from. Uh, In reality, I've lived in Belfast longer than I've lived in Balamina. I don't even sound like I'm from Balamina anymore, although we were up there yesterday, and I definitely sounded like I was from Balamina then. Um, But maybe you feel the same way about going back to your hometown. It feels like home somehow. Even though it's not your home anymore, it feels like home there's nostalgia, the memories, the seeing how things have changed, but yet how nothing ever changes. You know that weird thing? Um, it's always great running into people you haven't seen in years and years. And when Jesus came back to Nazareth, I imagine he felt that same sense of nostalgia. This is the small town that he grew up, he grew up in. Everybody knew him and he knew everybody, right? Every, he was Mary and Joseph's boy. He had trained to be a carpenter. And then he went off to become a teacher. Nazareth wasn't a huge metropolis. It was a wee farming town. It wasn't exactly what you would call a desirable location. In fact, uh, people said about it, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? That's, that's what this, this town, this re, the reputation this town had, like Newton Ards or something, you know? Like, sorry if you're from Newton Ards, but like, no, it's one of those that I've really offended some people. But it's, uh, what town do you pick? Um, not Balmain, anyway. Um, and Jesus is coming back but he's actually a bit of a local celebrity by now he's been going around preaching Nazareth is in Galilee and, and word has got back that Jesus is preaching and he's healing people and, and it's a bit of success and so uh, the locals in Nazareth would say well yes yeah, something good can come from Nazareth look at he's our local boy done good like Balamina a few years ago we got to give Liam Neeson big Liam the keys to the town. That's our only famous person to ever come from Balamina. Um, Jesus was a bit of a local celebrity. And so I can assume that when he came to the synagogue this Sunday, this Sunday, this Sabbath, Saturday, um, it probably would have been packed out. He probably had people, like if you heard I wasn't going to be here preaching and we had a guest speaker, maybe more people would come to church or something. Um, and how a normal Sabbath gathering in the synagogue work was this. First, there was singing from the Psalms, followed by reciting this prayer from Deuteronomy 6 called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. It goes on. Then there was, uh, they recited 18 prayers, 18 benedictions. Um, And then came the scripture reading. So the officer would go to the holy ark where the, the, the scrolls were kept and he would pick out the scroll for that day and it would be wrapped in cloth and he would unwrap it and lay it on the table um, where it would be read and then afterwards it would be all wrapped up neatly again and put back in the holy ark. And after that, 
there was the sermon. And it's these two parts that Jesus is doing this, this, this Sabbath. And so it's very likely that before the service, Jesus had been asked by the synagogue leaders if, if he would do the reading that day. Well, Jesus, we, you've had the success. We, we knew you are going to be in town uh, to visit your mom and dad. Or would you come and, and, and read and preach this Sunday? I keep saying Sunday, this Sabbath. Um, and so Jesus would have said, yes, I would love to. And can you please pull out the scroll, which is from Isaiah? And it's in this passage that Jesus reads and then what he says about himself afterwards that we see what the gospel is. What the gospel is. I'm going to read this again, actually. Verses 18 to 21. This is what Jesus reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim a good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine I could preach a one-sentence sermon. You'd all be so happy, wouldn't you? Um, Jesus uh, reads this combination of Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. And, he, and he, crucially, he leaves out one line. The last line which says, and the day of vengeance of our God. You can go back to Isaiah and read that for yourself. And by leaving out that last line, Jesus got their attention. You see, it should read that, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And everyone gathered knows these scriptures off by heart. And so their attention is, 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 is peaked because they're thinking, what is going on here? Why has he left off that last line? And then he sits down, which is the possession of the preacher in those days. You didn't stand to preach. You sat down to preach. Similar you see in when Jesus goes up the mount to do the Sermon on the Mount, he sits down and then begins to teach. And then he says the most astonishing thing that they could imagine. I am the one who fulfills this prophecy. What you've just heard read is being fulfilled right now. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. And basically, Jesus is saying two things. First, he's saying that the hope of the world, promised long ago, is found completely and fully in him. And secondly, what he's saying is that while the day of God's vengeance would come, it's not that day. What was being fulfilled that day was the year. In other words, the, 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 the time or the season of God's favor. Jesus is bringing God's favor. This is good news. And it's good news for the poor. The captives will be set free. The blind will receive their sight. And the oppressed will be released. This is the work that God has promised to do. And he's doing it through Jesus. Jesus saying, listen up. This is happening. It's happening right now. And he mentions in this passage four groups of people. The first are the poor. Now, the poor um, can mean a couple of things. It certainly covers financially poor people. But it's more than that as well. Jesus' emphasis is always on the spiritually poor as well. Um, and it's often the case you find that the materially poor are more aware of their spiritual need. And you probably know this to be true from your own experience. Not because I imagine any of us are particularly poor, 
but the opposite. Most of us and the people we're friends with are pretty well off in the grand scheme of things. You might not have thousands of pounds in the bank, but most wager have to sleep in tonight, have food to eat, and have mobile phones and the internet. And that puts us in a pretty well-off, comfortable position. So if it looks like we have everything that we need, clothes, food, entertainment, knowledge, information, how on earth do we begin to see that we have any need at all? The word for poor that Jesus uses here is the same word that is in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the people who actually enter God's kingdom are the people who realize that they are poor, realize their need for him. And often, people in in material need are more open to the gospel message because they feel easier to recognize their spiritual need because they live in a state of perpetual need. And Jesus says, my coming is good, for the, is good news for those in need. Next, Jesus preaches that the captives will be set free. Now, I love this one. This word technically means prisoners of war. Not that there were any prisoners attacked in Nazareth, but Jesus is again talking about captives in a spiritual sense. And it's maybe hard for us to recognize ourselves as captives, isn't it? But what about spiritual bondage? Bondage to money, or maybe even money worries is maybe more accurate for a lot of us. Bondage to guilt, I guarantee we all know what that feels like. Bondage to the hurt that you just can't seem to let go of. Bondage to your insecurities and the lies that Satan tells you about yourself. Bondage to the endless stream of rubbish that you scroll through on Instagram. I wish I didn't look at this thing so much, but why can I not put it away? Bondage to sin. I know we all know that one. The same old behavior that you do over and you just want to stop, but somehow you can't. You ever feel like that? Because I know I do. Well, here's the good news. And this is what Jesus is preaching to us this morning. He's preaching to these group of Nazarites 2,000 years ago, but he's preaching the same message to us this morning. He has come to set free those who are captive to sin, those who are prisoners of war war against evil. And if you are a Christian, you are in Jesus. You've been spiritually engrafted into him. And so you share in his victory over your sin. And this is like a tangent. I could preach another sermon on this, but I just know this. If you are in Jesus and you no longer... Before, we are truly slaves to to sin, but now he has set us free, and we don't have to sin anymore. We have victory over that. It's like Jesus has bust open the doors, but we somehow choose to stay inside the, the, the dungeon. And Jesus says to us this morning, I have come free. That's the gospel. Jesus goes on to, to, to speak about the blind, that the, the blind will recover their sight. Now, being blind is one of the main ways that the Bible talks about how we are outside of Jesus, right? Remember, uh, probably from, you know, from our Advent and Christmas readings, the prophet Isaiah says that um, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Even Jesus, when he sent in the, uh, when he sent in the apostle Paul uh, to, into his ministry, this is what he says. He says, Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light 
from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. You see, outside of Jesus, before the Holy Spirit comes and, and opens our eyes to him, we're blind. Darkness, we can't even see our need of salvation. We're, we're like that poor man in the hospital who doesn't even realize he's in need. Like a blind person walking along the edge of a cliff, we can't see the danger we're in. And Jesus says, I have come to open your eyes. I've come to give sight to the blind. This is the gospel. And then finally, Jesus mentions the oppressed. To the oppressed. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. The idea behind the word oppressed is, I feel like I'm doing a lot of word talk this morning, but, but bear with me. The idea behind the, the word oppressed is, it means those who are crushed. It literally means broken into pieces, shattered. Jesus has come for these people. And that's good news, isn't it? I feel broken into pieces. And if you don't today, I guarantee that throughout your life, you will at some times feel broken into pieces. Maybe you feel shattered. Maybe you feel crushed, pressed down by the guilt of your own sin. Wishing you could be a better friend or a better daughter or a better husband or a better wife or a better dad or a better mom, a better employee. Just trying to figure out why can I not get these relationships right? Maybe you're crushed by the weight of peer pressure or social media pressure. The weight of insecurities and shame and body image and, and failure and fatigue. We carry these things around like a weight so it feels like we're stooped over. And Jesus says to you, I have come to set you free. I'm going to lift that weight from you. I'm going to build back the pieces that you've been broken into. R. Kent Hughes, who's a, another teacher, he, he puts it this way, and I just, I had to quote it to you because it just, it really, it made me, uh, it brought me to tears. Um, apparently it has again, I haven't even said it yet. He says it this way, he says, Jesus comes to those who are squashed by life's circumstances. You can see no way out. You find living itself an oppression. Wow. And he gives them freedom. That's our Jesus. That's what he does. So what a message this is. There is freedom for those who are crushed. Freedom for those who are prisoners of war. There is sight for the blind. That's what Jesus does for us. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that Jesus preaches. Uh, but Jesus more than a preacher. He's not just the messenger. He's the Messiah. He doesn't just preach the message, he fulfills the message. He doesn't just give the message, he is the message. I get up here to preach on a Sunday, and all I can do is deliver a message. All I can do is point to Jesus. But when Jesus preaches, he also fulfills what he's preaching. And this is why Jesus. I was joking with somebody the other day, and I was saying, I feel like every sermon I preach is the same. <laughs> And I was joking about it. It's always just like, look at Jesus, trust Jesus, repent and believe. And as I was joking about this, I realized I do preach the same message every Sunday. And you know what? I'm going to continue to because I've got nothing in me to look to. Uh, what other message is there except look at Jesus, trust in Jesus, repent Jesus? What other message is there? He's the one who sets the captives free, not me. Who, who else can... Open the eyes of the blind except Jesus. Who else can, can bust open the prison doors and set us free from the guilt and the shame that we carry? So let me say it again in case you haven't heard me say it before. 
If you want forgiveness for your sin, if you want to be redeemed and your insecurity and all the things that crush you and keep you prisoner, repent and believe. Trust in Jesus and he will set you free. Now, can you imagine what it was like to hear Jesus himself uh, preach, read this and then explain it? There's never been a thinker or a communicator like Jesus. And the reason I know that is because he can think and communicate without sin. He can learn perfectly without sin. He can teach perfectly without sin. And initially, the congregation are amazed. Verse 22 tells us that they they marvel at his message. They're captivated by what he's saying. But that's as far as it went for them. And this is where we see who the gospel is for. Now remember where Jesus is. He's back in Nazareth. It's a small town where he grew up. All these people know Jesus. This isn't a hometown like even Belfast, which is a relatively small city, or even Balamina, which is a relatively small town. This is a small first century Judean town. It's not big. Everybody knows him and he knows everybody. Maybe some of them. Maybe some of the people in the synagogue that day even played together with Jesus when, when they were kids. And they say, hang on a second. I'm amazed by what he's saying. Isn't this Joseph's son? Like, how, how can a lowly carpenter's boy speak this way? You see, they couldn't fit Jesus' ancestry with his claims, and they're skeptical. They're unmoved by them. They didn't see themselves in any of Jesus' metaphors, nor did they want to. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. And, and before they get a, say, a chance to say anything, he, he tells them what they're thinking. He says, I know what you're going to say. You're even going to quote scripture to me. You're going to tell me this proverb, physician or doctor, hail yourself. And you're going to say, uh, do what you did. These miracles you've been doing in these other places, do them here. Prove it to us. We need a sign. Prove you are who you say you are. Because all we see is a carpenter's son who's gone off and become a big shot and has come back telling us uh, what, who we are and what we need to do and that we're sinful. In, you see, in some ways, they're so familiar with Jesus, yet they can't accept him. They have their perception of him, but, but they actually can't handle him telling them that they are poor, blind, oppressed captives in need of salvation. They think they know Jesus, and so they just want him to do what they want him to do. Maybe the place was packed out that Sunday just so, because they thought maybe Jesus was going to do a miracle. And listen, we like this too. We can be so familiar with, with our perception of Jesus, who, who we think he is, and who we want him to be, that we just can't accept that when he challenges us, when he reveals our need of salvation, And the warning is that it's totally possible to think we know Jesus, but not accept him. And you might ask, well, listen, I'm part of this church. How do I know if that's not me? Well, if you don't accept your spiritual poverty, if you don't recognize your need for him, if your head is full of knowledge, but your heart isn't full of grace, then it may well just be that you think you know Jesus, but aren't really accepting him. Same goes like the people of Nazareth. If you want a sign more than you want the Savior, maybe you really aren't accepting Jesus at all. 
If your prayer is more, Jesus, why aren't you doing this for me in, this, in my life than it is not my will but yours? And maybe accepting him. And then Jesus, being the amazing teacher that he is, uses two stories from the Old Testament, which obviously he has memorized, um, to illustrate his point. Stories that, by the way, the congregation would have been very familiar with too. Listen to these stories he tells in verses 25 to 27. But in truth I tell you, Jesus says, there were many widows in Israel in in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Here's three things. Land of Sidon, Gentile woman, widow, bottom of the heap, okay? Bear that in mind, not desirable, not a good, godly person who's close to the temple, who's close to the, 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 the seat of religion. And then he goes on. Um, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian leper, dirty Syrian. He's a Gentile again. Jesus uses these stories to show the people that in spite of what they think, they are actually in spiritual need. You can read this story of Elijah and the starving widow in 1 Kings 17. Elijah comes across a woman. The prophet Elijah comes across this woman and she's gathering sticks to light a fire. And basically she's going to make a meal for her and her son so that as she puts it, we can eat and die. The woman is starving. There's been a famine in the land for, there's been no rain for three and a half years. There's no way out for her and her son. And so she's resigned herself to the fact that after this last meal, her and her son are going to starve to death. Now Elijah responds to her, uh, I'm afraid. (laughs) That's like, you know, when someone's worried and you're like, look, don't worry. (laughs) Elijah says, don't be afraid. Go and uh, get the last of your food, make some food for me, then make some for yourself and your son. Because God has promised that your jar of flour and your uh, jug of oil will not run out until this famine is over. An amazingly starving Gentile widow woman trusts the word of God. And she does what Elijah says, and sure enough, her food doesn't run out. So why does she trust him? Why does she trust Elijah? If she had been like the people of Nazareth here, she probably would ask for a sign. She might have said, well, give me some proof that uh, what you're saying is true, that my food won't actually believe, and then I'll, and, and, and my food won't run out, and then I'll actually believe and do what you say. But she doesn't. She simply trusts and obeys. She simply accepts and realizes her absolute poverty and her lack of any means to do anything about it. Now imagine if she had cupboards full of food, larder stacked with tins and a freezer full of, 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 of meat and vegetables. She might have trusted twice. For her, her blessing was that she realized that she was desperately in need of God's help. And once she trusted God, there was plenty of evidence that he is faithful. And this was the problem of the people of Nazareth. They wanted evidence that Jesus had come to free the captives and sight the blind, or give sight to the blind. And if they wanted that evidence, all they had to do was believe and there would be evidence. But of course, the problem was that in their eyes, they didn't need to be freed because they weren't captives. 
They didn't need sight because they weren't blind. They were good, respectable, synagogue-going, family-oriented citizens of Nazareth. How dare Jesus tell them that they are in spiritual need like this widow, this Gentile, this starving person. And then Jesus really drives his home point with the second story, um, the story of Naaman the leper. You might remember this story from a few weeks ago when Nathan taught on this um, in our gathering. Naaman, uh, it was the commander of the Syrian armies. The Syrians are the enemies of, of Israel. And uh, he's sent by uh, the king of Syria to be cured of his leprosy. And he comes to the prophet Elijah. Elisha. sorry. And Elisha tells him all he has to do to be cured is to wash seven times in the river Jordan. And Naaman is furious. That's it. Washing that stinking river seven times. Don't you see how important I am? Look at this literal truckload of money I've brought. He literally brings a truckload of money. And second, if I do have, there are far nicer and more important rivers for me to wash in that filthy stream. But then his servants convince him to do what the prophet has said. They say, look, if you'd been told to do something more important, something grand, something you could be proud of, you would have done it. So why not just do the humble thing and receive the healing? And the synagogue goers of Nazareth, not only was Jesus telling them that they are poor, captives, blind, and oppressed, but now they're told that they are less spiritual and just as needy as a Gentile leper, just as much in need as a starving Gentile widow, just as unclean and in need of a cure as someone with an incurable, filthy skin disease, and they can't handle it. And even before the service ends, they get up and drive Jesus out of town. And listen, it's easy to think, these fools, what are they doing driving Jesus out of town? But we do the same. Jesus' message is vital here. We need to recognize our need of him. And, and, and honestly, often we don't. We need to recognize that, that we are sinners in need of his grace. We need to recognize that the God for us we're part of the church and we're part of a missional community and we think, well, maybe the gospel's not for me anymore. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not in need anymore. And we need to see that the gospel is for all who are in need and we need to see that that's us. It's not just the poor, sinful people over there who need the gospel. I am poor and sinful too. I find it interesting that the passage from Isaiah that Jesus reads is, is partly addressing how the, the people of Israel have Field to keep the Sabbath. <laughs> and here they are in the synagogue on a Sabbath. Uh, and it looks like maybe on a surface level they've fulfilled this prophecy themselves. Well, Isaiah is saying, you guys have broken the law and judgment's coming and part of that is the Sabbath. Well, not us. Look at us. We're good. We're in, the, we're in the synagogue on Sabbath. We're hearing the scriptures. We're reciting the prayers. All the stuff we can call from memory. Jesus says, you're blind. You can come to church you want. You can keep all the rules. You can say all the prayers. You can be good living and still miss the point. And this can happen so easily. We can slip into being a bunch of churchgoers and nothing else. Maybe people that tune into a live stream every now and again. But guess what? God doesn't want churchgoers, He wants faithful disciples. 
Being a churchgoer won't save us. Being part of a missional community or a core group uh, won't save you. Uh, being a missional community leader won't save you. Being a pastor who stands up and teaches the Bible won't save you. Only recognizing our need for Jesus will save us. And the gospel isn't just for non-Christians, for people outside the church. It's just what we need to see that, that the gospel is a message by which we are saved, but it's also the, gospel, the message by which we live. What other plea is there? It's why I keep saying to us every Sunday, look to Jesus, believe in Jesus. We're not saved by the faith that we had one day when we were 10 years old, when we said a sinner's prayer. We're not saved by the faith we had yesterday. We're saved by the faith in Jesus we have today. Daily recognizing our need of him. Daily recognizing that without him we are poor, blind, oppressed captives. And if you think about it, being, being part of the church but not recognizing your need for God's grace is a bit like being in hospital severely injured and not recognizing you need treatment. It's for all who are in need. And we need to see that that is us. I want to finish by looking at the people's response here and, and, and seeing our response to the gospel. Uh, I'll finish by reading uh, verses 29 to 30. They rose up people in the synagogue, and drove Jesus out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Um, already right at the beginning of his ministry, old Simeon's prophecy is coming true, isn't it? Do you remember? Remember what he said? He said to Mary, he said, Mary, your son's gonna be rejected. He's gonna be opposed. And it's already happening. See, so you either believe him and worship him as Lord, or you will cliff. And in a very real sense, we need to ask ourselves, what are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do with this message he preaches? Are we going to recognize our need and accept him, or are we going to try and get rid of him? Notice what happens here. Jesus passed through their midst and went away, right? Um, something mysterious and miraculous happens here. The crowd has hold of him, and they're about to go down this cliff, and he miraculously escapes from them. In the synagogue, the people have been asking for a sign that Jesus is who he says he is. They were asking for a miracle, and they got one, but it wasn't the miracle they wanted. He passes through them, and he went away. Are there any sadder words in the whole Bible than he went away? He just went away. There's no record of Jesus ever coming back to Nazareth and ministering to the people there. There's a kind of finality to their rejection of him. And here's the warning for us. If we reject Jesus today, we might just lose him forever. If we reject Jesus today, you might just lose him forever. There's no telling what's going to happen in the next 10 seconds, never mind the next 10 years. Can we really afford to reject Jesus now? There's a serious warning that Luke is giving us through, through uh, telling this story. Jesus says even about himself in, in Matthew 7, he says that someday many people are going to uh, claim to accept him, but by then it will be too late. And, and he's going to say to those people, I never knew you. You have to depart from me. And so really in the end, the question ultimately will be not do I accept Jesus, but does he accept me? And the only way to be accepted by him on that day is to accept him on this day. 
Realize your need of him and trust him for salvation. And for some of us, the question certainly is, have we accepted Jesus? For all of us, the question is, are you still accepting Jesus? Do you accept Jesus today? Are we simply relying on his grace and mercy and nothing else, not looking for miracles, not, looking, not relying on our ability to be part of a church? Because if we reject Jesus today, we might lose him forever. And I wish I didn't have to say that, but that's what the Bible says. But as terrible and sobering as the warning of rejecting Jesus is, the good news of accepting him is just as lovely. John chapter 1 tells us that, and I put this in here because it really relates, it says that he came to his own people. In this story, he literally comes to his own people. He came to his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. When you receive Christ, you put your faith in Jesus, and because you have faith in him, you're made right, right with God, what the Bible calls justified, and because you're justified, you're adopted into his family, the very family of God. You have the right to call yourself a child of God. That's something that can't be taken away from you. It becomes your birthright. No one can ever say to me that my mom is not my mom. That will always be a historical, unchangeable fact. This is what happens when we believe in Jesus, when we accept him. We are brought into the family of God. It becomes our birthright. So let me Because here's Jesus' invitation this morning. I wanted us to imagine that, and not just imagine, but realize that Jesus preaches to us. The way we see him in this passage preaching to, the, to this synagogue full of people. Jesus preaches to us here through his word. So uh, maybe, you, maybe you want to close your eyes for a second and just consider this. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He says, children, without me, you're poor and needy without any means of providing for yourself. Without me, you are captive, prisoner to sin, and shame and guilt. Without me, you're blind, unable to see the danger you're in. Without me, you're oppressed and crushed under the weight of life and insecurities and pressure, unable to stand up and walk freely. But, children, I have come with good news for you, good news for the poor. I have come to set you free from your prison of shame and self-loathing and the same old sin that you just wish you could stop. I've come to give you sight. I've come to set you free from your oppression. You don't need to be a slave to sin any longer. You don't need to carry around your guilt and your failures any longer. You don't run in the dark trying to find a path through life anymore. I have come to set you free. So don't reject me. Instead, realize your need for me and accept me either for the first time or again as your salvation. Today, come Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that uh, you speak to your church. Uh, we don't deserve that. Um, Father, I pray that... You would open our eyes, that you would, again, uh, help us to recognize our need of you. Uh, 
Lord Jesus, we want to say that we, without you, are blind and uh, poor and captive. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've come to set us free, that these words that you spoke 2,000 years ago are true, that you, that you have won our salvation through your death on the cross, that the day of the Lord's favor is here. Um, help us to receive that once again. Help us, maybe even it's the first time to receive that. Maybe it's the 10,000th time. Just help us to receive your salvation for us. Uh, Lord, who else is there? There's no one else. Lord, we don't ever, we don't ever want to preach any other sermon. <laughs> Just look to Jesus. We love you, Lord. Thank you that you love us. Amen.